Brothers and sisters, uh, Greg, can you bring up the first slide? Thanks. I want you to imagine this morning a guy named David. For the previous 35 years, David has lived a pretty normal life. Grew up in Sydney, uh, gone to school, went to uni, got married. With his wife, then bought an apartment, which they sold to buy a duplex, which they sold to buy a small house, which they're now looking to sell to buy a larger one. They have two kids, and they look, from the outside, like a very normal family. But something hasn't been quite right for David. Uh, he, feels that he's in, uh, he feels that in life he's in a place where he wants to be. Uh, there's more promotion at work to come, but he's in a good place. He loves their home. His kids are all healthy. Relationship with his wife sound. They get away for holidays each year. But something's missing. And for about six months, David has felt like he's had an itch that he just can't scratch. Something's missing. He can't articulate what it was. He's just felt that there's this gap. Then David met a new guy at work. Someone who was actually very similar to him. Similar school backgrounds, similar home and family life, similar career at the same company. But this guy had something David didn't. Peace or something. The very thing that David felt like he was missing, this guy seemed to have in spades. Long story short, but after many a chat over lunch at work, many a dinner with each other's families, many a beer over many a Friday nights, David came to a place where he found himself gripped by the grace of God. He found himself for the first time coming to start to get his head around this God out there who made everything and yet who knew him and had this personal interest in him. More than that, this love for him. And it wasn't because he was good. He was the first to admit that he had essentially lived up to that point for himself. No, he came to find that this God loved him despite how he'd lived, not because of how he'd lived. He came to know that this God gave his son Jesus to live for him, to die for him, so that he could find God. He was gripped by the grace of God. And David was changed. He loved starting to explore who Jesus was for the first time. He loved considering work in a whole new way. It sort of had this whole new purpose now that it hadn't had before. He loved being a dad and a husband in a way that he'd never had to think through. Meeting with Christians Sunday by Sunday, community group by community group, became one of the highlights of his week. He he found his way into a community where people treated each other with gentleness and love and grace. Sort of the opposite to how people normally treat each other. He found that there wasn't a sense of competitiveness or insecurity or bitterness even They just weren't part of relationships. Rather, relationships seem to be marked by joy, integrity and transparency. Now, friends, I've got to admit that I've just made that whole story up. But I didn't need to. Because even last week I met with someone from this church and I could have easily put their name into that story and they would have said that that is exactly what happened to them, plus or minus a few details. The fact is that plus or minus a few details, that story 
could actually be many of our stories, perhaps most of our stories. That first part of David coming to find God's remarkable love for him in Jesus, it's not hard to believe. When you yourself sit there knowing that you've also found that remarkable love of God to you in Jesus. And because the first part of that story is pretty much our story, we hear it and we love it and we say, yes, God is still doing that in this world, calling people like David to himself. God is still doing that in this church. That was the first part of the story. But what about the second part? where I spoke about the church community that David found. I described his experience of church, meeting with other Christians, as one of the highlights of his week, where he found a community marked by gentleness, love and grace, where competitiveness and bitterness and insecurity were not part of relationships, but rather relationships were marked by joy, integrity and transparency. See, I reckon that's the part of the story that's harder to believe. Why? Well, if you have had any experience with any gathering of human beings be that in a school or a sports club or a workplace, you will know that human beings actually find it very difficult to regularly let gentleness, love and grace be the hallmark of their interactions with one another. You will know that actually more common is competitiveness, insecurity, perhaps even bitterness that seems to come to the fore. But more than that, if you've actually had any interaction with a church over a prolonged period of time, you'll know that churches are often not much better. In fact, by the time you add in a healthy dose of hypocrisy, you might well think that churches can be significantly worse. I've also met many people here who've told me their stories. And they've explained to me that their experiences of church over the years have been very difficult. So the question of the day is this. Which is it? What is church? Are we a community marked by grace? Or are we a community of people, a gathering of people so broken and lost that of course our relationships with each other are going to be difficult and aggravating? Well, it doesn't matter what I think on this actually. Because Paul is crystal clear, and we're going to see what he says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Can you look at verses 1 to 3, please? In verses 1 to 3, it would be very helpful if you have your Bibles open. Make sure that I'm not making this up. But in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, Paul tells us what people are like. What you are like. And it is a bleak picture. Listen to Paul. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at uh, at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, deserving of wrath. You see, Paul is describing here your life before Jesus. And what he's saying to you is that he's saying before you met Christ, you were dead. You were dead. 
not alive. So enmeshed and entrapped and enslaved in a way of life that the best description of that life, according to Paul, is death. And this is how Paul describes guys like David, who I spoke about at the start, who lived a life that looked normal, but who was essentially doing his own thing without care or reference for God who made him. That's what verse 3 means. Can you look at that? That's what verse 3 means when it says that all of us lived in a way driven by gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Have no doubt. Naturally, we are people driven by our desires. We want something, we take it, we consume it. And Paul says that that is to render a person dead to God. And here's the thing. Churches are made up of these people. Church is a gathering of the broken. This describes us. Some of us as we once were, some of us as we currently are, but it describes all of us at one time or another. Is it any wonder that you've had a negative experience at church? Look who you hang out with. What do you expect from a gathering of people who by nature gratify gratify the cravings of their flesh and follow its desires and thoughts? Here's the thing. Here at Norwest Anchor, we'd love to be a church full of gentle, loving and gracious people. We'd love our relationships to be marked by joy and integrity and transparency, but it's not going to happen. It's an impossibility, if you believe Paul. In our natural state, we're stuffed. And if we try harder to be this church, if you come here each week and get out of the car and think, I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try, you're gonna fail. If we strive with all our might to be more gracious and welcoming and bold and vocal and generous and meek and, and, And we will fail. You see, this kind of church is actually an impossibility. And verse 1 to 3 tells us why. By nature, we're dead. Not because we're not well made. No, this is not a matter of poor workmanship on God's behalf. But rather sin on our own. By nature, we live driven by our cravings. By nature, we live driven by our desires. By nature, we live driven by our hungers. By nature, we live driven by our lusts. And that makes us objects of wrath. God saw us as objects of wrath. And to be the church I described before, for people I described before, it's impossible. Because churches are made up of sinners by nature who left to their own devices will live how they want and who find themselves under the condemnation of God. Good start to the year. The kind of church we want to be is impossible. We cannot make it. But at the same time, this kind of church is possible But to put it another way, there is hope for the gathering 
of the broken. And it all begins, it all begins the moment we realise we cannot make ourselves the church we want to be. Listen to Paul in verses 4 to 6. But, very significant but in the whole New Testament. But, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. See, what Paul tells us here, what he tells you here, is that despite the fact that you were an object of God's wrath, God reached in. God reached down. God intervened and did something remarkable. He took people deserving of wrath, deserving of judgment and condemnation, and he made us alive. He put broken people back together. Why? Paul says, because he loved us. He loved us. So he made dead people live. And all because of his grace towards us. You see, he didn't just make us alive, he actually gave us everything. As God raised Jesus from the dead, what we read is, so he is done with us. He seated us with Jesus in heaven. Brothers and sisters, we cannot make the kind of church we want to be. But God can, God does, and God will. God can make something impossible possible, like bringing dead to life. He he can take people like me, and I presume like you, no, I know like you, people who love sin and who love darkness and who love autonomy, and he can take my heart and yours and turn it back to him, not because I deserve it, you deserve it, but even when we don't. And he can draw us together to enable us to live with each other, not as friends or colleagues or like-minded individuals who hang out together for an hour on a Sunday, but as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And his grace to you becomes the very reason that you would start to show grace to another. You see, this remarkable transformation occurs where church moves from being this gathering of the broken to a place of hope for the broken. But please don't miss what is the power for the broken. It's our third thing we're going to see. Don't don't miss what the thing is that moves me from being self-interested, self-focused, to attempting to be gracious and outward and joy-filled. It is not liberty. It is not equality. It is not fraternity. It is not tolerance. It is not the milk of human kindness, whatever that is. It is grace. Do not miss verse 8. Please look at it. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. 
See, the power that makes us a community of people marked by gentleness and love and joy and integrity and transparency is grace. The fact that God let his son weep and bleed and hang and die for you. Because he loved you when you did not love him. And when that captures you, that changes you. When grace captures you, grace changes you. This is not anyone's doing apart from God. You are saved by grace through faith in God. None of it's from you. You might say, what about the faith? I've got to put faith in God. No, no, no. That's a gift from God as well. The faith you have to put in him is from him to start with. It is unrelated to your life, to how good you are or how bad you are. It is a gift from start to finish. The power to be God's people comes from God and God alone. And my brothers and sisters, when we as a church flourish as we do and serve one another as we do and preach Christ crucified as we strive and as we are exceedingly generous and patient and gracious with one another, it's because we've let the grace of God settle upon our hearts. And when we don't, we haven't. Often sermons like this finish here. And we've felt the love of God, the grace of God, and and we've been reminded that we don't deserve it, and that makes it all the more powerful. Let me pray. No, we can't pray here. We can't pray. This isn't the end. There's one more thing you can't miss. Can you look at verse 10? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do not miss this point. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has not saved you merely because he wanted you to feel like you'd found your way in this world. Jesus did not save you merely so that you would find some existential comfort. Jesus died, believe it or not, for a purpose beyond how that makes you feel. You have been saved to worship Jesus. You have been saved to serve the Son of God. You have been saved to live for him. God has made you this new, remarkable, spirit-filled creature to love him, to walk with him, and to do good works, which he has prepared. You've not been saved to join a club. You've not been saved to find morality. You've not been saved to become an upright model citizen, whatever that means. You've been saved to honour Jesus, live for Jesus, represent Jesus, speak for Jesus, and to do good works for Jesus, which he already knows that you'll do because he organised them in the first place. You know, there are churches all over the city of ours, my brothers and sisters, that are dying out. I drove past one two days ago where money is raised by car boot sales and church fates, where the gospel is no longer preached. And along the way, they have stopped being grace-filled communities. They've lost their heartbeats, so of course they die. 
they have lost the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. They have stopped being communities where people lay down personal preference, where people lay down uh, personal comfort, where people lay down personal convenience for the sake of one other who might come in and hear about Jesus and repent and believe in him. Will you pray that we never become like those churches? I started this morning speaking about David, a man like many of us, who Jesus found and then who Jesus brought into a community of his people like us. And I spoke about David stumbling into a church he loved. He just loved. It was a remarkable place. Can you imagine if such a church existed? Can you imagine someone joining a church like that? Just imagine that someone like David walked in here next Sunday. Someone who had, for the first time, found Jesus, or for the first time in a long time, come home to Jesus. And they walked in here and they felt like they'd come home. They felt like there was nothing missing anymore. They felt like there was no gap. Imagine that next week. Now imagine a thousand Davids walking in here over the next two decades. Where these people don't come in here because they always have, or because they feel like they should, it's what you do in the hills, or because when they were 16 they once made a commitment to Jesus so they should probably do something with that. No, they come here because they've been gripped by the grace of God gripped by the approach of Jesus to them, one that did not demand moral perfection, church attendance or even clean language, an approach that asked for one thing, repentance, a heart, a mind, a life that knew it was stuffed and cried out for help and reached out to God for that help in Jesus Christ. You see, imagine people turning up here, so stunned are they by the grace of God that that he would make them his, that they are a ruined people. They are ruined to church attendance because it's what you do. They're ruined to simply coming to church, singing a few songs, listening to mildly interesting sermons and then leaving to get on with the rest of life. They are ruined to a life of polite middle-class Anglicanism. They are ruined to believing that knowing Jesus is this private matter, one you should keep to yourself. You see, brothers and sisters, if you get grace, you will be ruined. Grace ruins you. See, when grace grips you, when you come to treasure Jesus first and first alone, life just looks different. You look to live for him. You learn to love the good things, the good works that he's got in store for you. As many of you know, in a bit under 12 months, a bit under 12 months, we're going to be planting a new church service here at Norwest. In fact, hot off the press, we're going to be planting two. Because 9.30am, that's you, will not be able to stay at 9.30am. And we're going to be moving to having two new family services in the morning. Let me put it like this. Every member of 9.30am church is becoming a church planter. And this is such an exciting thing in the life of our church. Churches pray, churches dream of being in a place where God has brought that much growth, that many people that you need to rearrange everything so to to enable more people to come in, to find Jesus, to, to find brothers and sisters and to find life. 
And that is the very point that God has brought us. Let, let me say this as clearly as I can. The privilege that we have uh, to be caught up in the outworking of God's plan right now to build this Christ-centred church that makes disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is able to reach out to the suffering and lost around us, the privilege of that is enormous. We are not adding a service. Let me be so clear about that. We are not adding a service. We are rearranging everything so that we can continue to respond to the new men and women and children and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters that our great God is bringing here to worship with us, to grow in Christ alongside us. Here's the question. What wouldn't you change for that? Now, I'm not saying this is going to be easy. (laughs) Whoever said anything about easy, There is no growth without change. There's no change without loss. There's no loss without grief. But it is God's grace to us in Jesus that would even allow us to consider accepting or even personally inviting such grief because there is a greater masterpiece that awaits us all. The church of God, the household of God, growing in men and women, boys and girls, who love to sing his praises. What wouldn't you change for that? Please be clear. God is giving this growth. And it is incumbent upon me and you to respond with humility and boldness. And it is grace. It is God's grace to us all in Jesus. That grace that shapes how we live and love and how we do church. That will lead us through. That will enable us to invite change. And deal with grief. That many more might come to know Christ as we do. Are you in for that? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, well, really just amazed at what you've done for us in Jesus. And yet, Father, so often we are such small people, we get so focused on our immediate needs and comforts and desires and loves and And you call us to look at a bigger painting. You call us to see our lives as just a few brush strokes on a much bigger canvas. Help us see the much bigger canvas. Help us love that canvas, that painting that you have, that story of you breaking into time and space to to call sinners like us back to you. And will you keep doing it? Here, for Jesus' glory and honour. And in his name we pray. Amen.